Welcome. I'm Dr. Vinay Prasad. I'm a hematologist oncologist, and I'm associate professor of medicine at the University of California, San Francisco. In my professional life, I see patients, I teach trainees, and I do research in healthcare policy. This is Plenary Session. Plenary Session is a podcast at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy, and you're listening to Season 3. On this week's episode. This week on Plenary Session, I'm joined by Jonathan Darrow. He's a lawyer and assistant professor at the Harvard Medical School, and he's here to talk about censorship in medicine. If you like this podcast and want more content, follow me on Twitter at vprasadmdmph. Check out the YouTube channel, Vinay Prasad, MDMPH. Patreon backers will get access to the slides for lectures I give on Plenary Session. Want to hear from us? Email us your question at plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com. It's the holiday season here at Plenary Session, and that means it's time for our semi-annual pledge drive. That's right. Plenary Session is supported by Patreon backers. You got to go to patreon.com, find Plenary Session. And if you are a planner, if you're a fan of this show, you need to donate to this show to keep it going. Plenary Session has no other support. We don't do advertisements. We keep it pure. And so we are supported by small backers. So if you enjoy this podcast, you should support the show. If you don't enjoy this podcast, you shouldn't support the show. I wouldn't recommend it only if you enjoy the podcast. I'm back in plenary session, joined via Zoom by Jonathan Darrow. He is a lawyer and legal expert and part of the Portal Group at Harvard Medical School. He is an assistant professor there at HMS and a lawyer by training. And you will know him from a prior episode where he took us through patent litigation around Vasepa. Professor Darrow, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Great. Ple- pleasure to be here. So I something that you did caught my eye, and this is the topic that I think we're going to talk about. Um, I was looking at Twitter, and I saw I said something like, Jonathan Darrow, like your tweet. And I uh, looked at the photo, and I thought, wait a second, it looks darkened. And in fact, I clicked on your profile, and it says, darkened profile photo to stand against online censoring of minority viewpoints on important public health matters. Hashtag no censorship. So this caught my eye and resonated with something that I've been feeling, but I wonder if you might walk us through this. What's going on, Jonathan Darrow? Why are you making a stand online? So I actually darkened my profile on both Twitter and LinkedIn. Uh, and as you mentioned, I changed the profile description to explain why. But you're right, it's a little bit cryptic. What does that mean to stand against online censoring of minority viewpoints on important public health matters? So just, just by way of background, I think this will set the stage. Uh, most of my professional career has been based on taking the minority viewpoint and specifically the viewpoint that many drugs are not as beneficial as you think they are. Lots of people don't like that viewpoint. Drug companies certainly don't like it. I found physicians don't always like to hear that. Uh, and even patients who are the uh, people that I'm trying to help don't necessarily want to hear that the drugs that they're taking don't really work that well if you actually look at the evidence. I know you're aware of this in the oncology field. I've read uh, some of your writings. But my viewpoint has been that the public needs to know. They need to know what the data actually say. When, when, when drugs are presented on TV one way and then you take the pill and suddenly the sun doesn't uh, you know, replace the clouds like it does on TV, the music doesn't suddenly change from somber tones to an upbeat melody. So it's what we experience is not necessarily the same as what we expect to experience. So I've spent my professional career understanding or trying to understand that disconnect and trying to explain it to the public. And I think it arises because it's so easy to present things without being inaccurate. You can present it accurately, but in a very optimistic way. I mean, it's not just the imagery. You can do it with numbers, you can do it with facts. Um, so I'm sure you're familiar with this type of example. If you have an absolute risk reduction of some event like a heart attack that goes from 2% to 1% after some intervention, that can seem huge if you present it as a relative risk reduction mm-hmm. of 50%. Absolutely. So even, those, even though those two things are identical, I think the average person is willing to pay a lot more for a 50% reduction than a 1% reduction. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So that's my background. The reason that I darkened my profile was actually not for myself. I've been doing this for a long time, and I haven't 
you know, other than meeting some resistance when I try to present these ideas to the public, I haven't had any problems with, with censorship. Um, but I did it to support others who I saw being picked on in the online environment for sharing their minority viewpoints, which were you know, different, not the, not the ones that I had, but there were other minority viewpoints out there. Um, and there wasn't one particular issue that I was especially concerned about. Um, although, when I first changed the profile, uh, it was during the time when Sweden was being criticized mm -hmm. for its more permissive approach to the coronavirus pandemic. Um, I, I don't know if Sweden's approach is the right one. Um, I don't think anyone knows, but there's a lot of people who think they know. And in my view, they were being intolerant of the expert viewpoints that were being expressed. Um, and this was not some fringe organization. Right? This is the uh, official policy of a sovereign nation, uh, presumably informed by their public health officials who are, again, presumably well-intentioned and they have expertise. And what the media in the U.S. was doing was shaming their approach. Uh, and people online were supporting that shaming. Um, it was a condescending attitude in which the speakers or the media were talking as if they were the parents they knew best and they were scolding Sweden as if it was a child. Uh, and that, in my view, is emblematic of what I see as a growing intolerance in this country, meaning the, the United States, that has reached the worst levels that I've seen in my lifetime. I'm, I'm 45. How dare another human being, or in this case, another country, come to a different conclusion that is different from my own based on the same set of facts. That's the attitude. There, there have been other issues that have come up since then. I mean, it's definitely not just uh, about Sweden. Um, and those other issues, I think, have met with similar intolerance. There have been some public health experts, including one of my very esteemed colleagues at Harvard, who have been advocating for an alternate approach to minimizing the harm from the coronavirus pandemic. And that approach focuses on achieving herd immunity with the lowest cost to human life, which I think we can all agree lowest cost to human life is, is what we want. Uh, the basic idea that these folks have, uh, at least as I understand it, uh, and this is described in a document called the Great Barrington Declaration, is uh, to, and I'm quoting here, to allow those who are at minimal risk of death to live their lives normally to build up immunity to the virus through natural infection and to better protect those who are at higher risk. Again, I don't know if this is the best idea or not. And, and I do, again, I don't think anyone does. But mm -hmm. the Declaration recognizes, uh, I think correctly, what has not been as prevalently stated in the media. And, and that is that the lockdowns are creating, or, or at least they, they could be, they seem to be creating, serious long and short-term harms. Mm -hmm. Things like suicide, lower vaccination rates, mm -hmm. uh, disruptions to education, mm -hmm. disruptions to people's careers, new graduates, uh, fewer cancer screenings, uh, and so on. And, you know, again, I don't know the, the quantitative measures of all these things. I don't know if the viewpoint is correct, but I think that it's an important, legitimate viewpoint. It's a minority viewpoint, and it's one that's being silenced. And that means the public is not getting balanced information about you know, what is clearly an important public health issue, or really a, a whole set of important public health issues. That's so well said. I want to put the pin on several things that you're saying. And, um, and, and, and then the question I'm going to ask you at the end of all this is to ask you, where does one draw the line between speech that criticizes back and silencing. That's the sort of my fundamental question. But but let me just say a couple things real quick. Um, one, um, part of your what brings you an interest in this topic is that you know what it's like to be on the minority side of an issue. And I think you said that rather eloquently. Um, I happen to agree on the issue that you're talking about. You know, you're right. And you've always been on the side of the right, which is that um, in a number of ways, the way in which we conceive of drugs and drug products is there's a huge momentum to exaggerate the benefits, downplay the harms, um, oversell what it does. And that in part fuels the unjustified prices that we have been collecting in the marketplace. And so there are a lot of people who make a lot of money from that narrative. And you and I and many others um, have been interested in that issue, and we have been fighting against the current, no doubt about it. I also feel a deep sympathy to you because 
One of my other issues is cancer screening, and I also have a you know minority viewpoint on that issue, and I've had a minority viewpoint on a few issues. Um, and I know, like, should every cancer patient get NGS? I've had that minority viewpoint for a while that you got to show me a randomized trial that shows a benefit, and then I'll be sold. Uh, they have yet to do that. So, so we know what it's like to be in a minority viewpoint, and we know that the majority, um, they are much more powerful than you. And if there's any opportunity for gray, and they can say, let's just silence this guy, and, and there's any gray zone there, they're going to win because they have all the power to do it. Um, okay, so that's the motivation. So let's start with that. Okay, so that, I agree with that. And now the next, then my next question for you is, um, and I agree with both those examples. The Sweden example is terrific. The the Great Barrington Declaration example is terrific. I mean, but how in your mind do you do you say what is acceptable? Like, of course, Martin and and colleagues and Jbot, um, you know, you can you can criticize them, say I'll disagree with you, damn you. Um, that's acceptable. But I, I do think Google engaged in shadow banning so that if you Google that term, they couldn't find it in the search engine. Um, so w- where is that line for you between I'm arguing back and I'm actually actually trying to take the legs out from under you and, and keep you from talking? You know, that's, that is the crux of the issue. And that's an excellent question. I, I wish I had a good answer to that. But uh, this is like many of the problems in law. It's a line drawing problem. W- where do you draw the line? Mm-hmm. I, I don't know where to draw the line, but, but what I see is there is a pendulum that is swinging back and forth. And right now, it seems to be at the highest point or lowest yeah. point, depending on how you want to think about it. That it's just, uh, the, the, it, I mean, I think intolerance is the word. There has been an incredible rise of intolerance of other people's viewpoints. I mean, I, I teach in class, and um, I, over the last 15 years, I've noticed a... Uh, reduction in the willingness of students to engage in vigorous debate and i think part of it is they are afraid of being censored or shamed or you know having some intolerant viewpoint expressed so they say things that are very safe and and that i don't know that we want to live in a society where students or, or or anyone is afraid of speaking up oh i agree with you so much um let me give two more data points that i think were problematic in my mind John Yonides and his IFR estimates have been vigorously debated, and he went on YouTube and he made a video, and in the video he has one sentence where he said, I believe that something when all is said and done, the infection fatality rate of SARS-CoV-2 will be, quote, in the same ballpark, end quote, as flu. Now, I think that that is a really tough sentence to parse um, in the sense that what is a ballpark? Uh, what is a ballpark when it comes to IFR? Um, you know, six months or 10 months ago, nobody even said IFR. They probably didn't know what the hell it was. Now it's a now it's a dinnertime conversation. What's the IFR? Now, I think John believes the IFR is something like 0.15. And I think some other people believe the IFR is, I don't know, 0.45 or somebody says 0.58 or whatever. I, I actually think it's all irrelevant. I mean, I call this IFR gate, everyone arguing about what exactly the IFR is. And the real questions of trade-offs are there, irrespective of where this precise number is. There are some deep philosophical questions about trade-offs that we need to have. And we've not been able to have that discussion because people don't want to hear this. Um, anyway, so he says in the same ballpark as. And I think YouTube made the policy that if somebody says something that was false, we'll allow that on YouTube. But if it has a risk of like um, I think their policy is that it has to be false and a potentially a threat to the public health, um, then we can remove it. And they removed his video. It's gone. He's no longer yeah. saying it's in the same ballpark. It's not existing. The second example that comes to my mind, and then again, I think, I guess I would say that my my own compass is even if one disagrees with him and thinks his IFR estimate is wrong, which I think is fair, it's fair to disagree. I think by him saying it's in the same ballpark as he gets so much flexibility from that statement that I don't think you can take away the video. For him, a ballpark could be two percentage points. How, who the hell knows? It's his ballpark. Who are you to tell him what a ballpark is? He's, he's the one who says a ballpark. Again, that's language. Um, okay, then the next issue that troubled me was Facebook and Carl Hennigan. Professor Carl Hennigan, Oxford University. Um, you know, He's done a lot of very important work in methodology over decades. Um, and of course, he has a, a minority view on SARS-CoV-2, and I I don't agree with everything he says. Um, and 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 some of what these people say grates on me because I think it could be delivered in a different way um, and preserve sort of the core thesis. And some of it I think it may be erroneous. But Carl said um, that he interprets the Danish mask study as um, it provides quote no significant. Uh, it shows that masks have no significant benefit, which technically. It, it, you know, it is a, it's not statistically significant study. Uh, it doesn't 
ex, you know, people who on the other side, they want to say that it didn't test the hypothesis that my mask protests you and not me. And, and there's also a possibility there's a 5% benefit that it doesn't have the power to exclude. That's all fine. But what he's saying technically is not erroneous. I don't think it's a technical error. Uh, he's technically within the realm of how we let people talk about studies. Um, and it was labeled by the platform as fake news or false. And, 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 and that to me is a bridge too far. We can't use these massive third-party powers um, because at the end of the day, Facebook, who is Facebook doing this? It's a group of like 20 or 30, probably mostly 30 or 30-something-year-old people who have a graduate degree in, in this field who are not professors, have never been professors, um, who haven't published a ton, or they'd probably be professors. Um, not to knock on them. I mean, I think it's fine to do other things, but they're not people who have a career of being in medicine and science and seeing the range of disputes we've permitted. And they're the ones adjudicating this thing. They may all be politically aligned. They may all be voting for one person. They may all be ideologically aligned. I, I'm not comfortable. And they work, they're employees of a ginormous corporation. Um, I'm not comfortable that they are the ones deciding what's true and false. Um, and I think it's deeply problematic because today it's John Ballpark. Today it's not significant Carl Hennigan. Tomorrow it's going to be Jonathan Darrow for saying that Selenexor isn't a terrific cancer drug because all the cancer experts who are on the payroll of Carrier Farm, they say it's good. And who are you? You're, you're, you're wrong. Thoughts? I mean, I, I agree with you on all of that. And in, in the law, there is a distinction between that I think you were making between false statements and statements of opinion. And the general rule, again, you have to figure out exactly what the line is, but the general rule is that false statements may be actionable if, you know, under certain circumstances, but opinions are almost never actionable. Um, so I would agree that the ballpark is pretty flexible. That, that sounds to me a lot more like an opinion, um, but, but I think you're right that uh, a private company can potentially take that down if, uh, if they want to. And so I, I actually, that's kind of the direction that, that I wanted to go uh, next. Yeah, so go what, what I was talking about earlier was informal private censorship, just the participants on Twitter, LinkedIn, or, or elsewhere. But there's, there's actually a second and more formal type of private censorship that's coming from the businesses themselves. And here, it, you know, maybe it is Twitter, maybe it's other media. Um, Online platforms, I think, as you just mentioned, have been literally removing or labeling in some kind of disparaging way content that's posted by users that's expressing a different viewpoint from their own or, or characterizing facts in a way that some people might uh, not approve of or might have done differently. Uh, it's it's hard to give concrete examples if you know because they're not there. That's what it means to be removed. You can't see what was there. So maybe you get a snippet of it, snippet of it uh, on the evening news, or maybe you're lucky enough to see it before it comes down. Um, and the justification is that these offending statements are fake news. Uh, and my concern is that the term fake news is just being used too broadly. Sure, if you have an entirely fabricated story that's you know, no basis in reality, maybe it makes sense to take that down. Maybe that could cause harm. But what about the case that, that you ex that you described about the Dan Mask study, where it's not false exactly, it's just a different interpretation or at least a, a nuanced way of wording something that I think is quite you know, very much fact-based. So in some cases, the media have gone further and they're actually talking about things that are being adjudicated in a court um, there have been assertions that I hear on a daily basis about false claims, you know, so-and-so falsely claimed such and such. Uh, you know, and maybe those things are false, right? But, but this places the media in an odd position because they're, they're in effect taking on the role of a judge and a jury, and they're declaring the verdict in these cases before a judicial body has actually ruled. Now, you know, maybe it's likely that the judicial body is going to say, yeah, this is nonsense. Mm -hmm. But it, it, there's a risk of bias uh, in the public mind if the media is reporting this and everyone is is hearing about it because it can be difficult to then find unbiased jurors. So it could actually taint the judicial proceeding itself. So that's about the media. I, I, I want to talk, if I can, for a moment yes. about Internet service providers yes. because they're um, a special case. Uh, ISPs, Internet service providers, are permitted by law to censor content. There's actually a a 1996 law called the Communications Decency Act mm -hmm. 
And, you know, that was meant to help the internet grow. And, and the way that it did this was by doing two things. Uh, and this is section 230 of that law. It, it, first, it grants immunity to ISPs. So they're not considered publishers of the information posted by users. And that helps to promote free speech because if you didn't have that part of Section 230, then ISPs might be uh, more likely to take down content to reduce their own liability exposure, right? If they're if they're being viewed right. as the speaker, then they, they're going to they don't want to be responsible for for user generated content. Mm -hmm. So that's the first thing it does. The second thing, though, that it does is to provide immunity for the deletion of mm -hmm. certain content. Mm -hmm. Um, and in fact, the original purpose of Section 230 is to allow ISPs to, uh, and I'm quoting here, block or screen offensive material. The, the title of this section says protection for private blocking and screening of offensive material. Mm -hmm. um, you could tell from the statutory language that Congress was primarily concerned about pornography, sexually explicit nice. material. Mm -hmm. But here's what it says. It says no ISP shall be liable if it takes a good faith action to restrict the availability of material that the provider considers to be obscene, lewd, lascivious, filthy, excessively violent, mm. harassing, or otherwise objectionable. So kind of a catch-all category. And then they add whether or not such materially, material is constitutionally protected. It specifically mentions parental controls, which gives another hint about the purpose, right? right? And children and protecting them from certain types of content that maybe were prevalent in the 1990s, uh, probably still prevalent today on the internet. So the concern with, as with media in general, is that, um, you know, apparently as permitted by Section 230, ISPs are removing content, not because it's false, but because they disagree with the viewpoint. Mm -hmm. um, and so we have the First Amendment, right, to protect us. Well, not really, because the First Amendment, uh, the free speech protection of the First Amendment, protects against government censorship. Yes. So unless we have and until a court rules that an ISP is taking on a government-like role uh, by providing a public forum for discussion in a way that implicates the First Amendment, uh, which may be unlikely, right? the First Amendment is probably not going to help very, very much. So and that creates a concern because the nature of where people speak is changing. Mm -hmm. We're no yes. longer going to public yeah. parks like we were in the 1700s. We're not standing up on a literal soapbox and speaking to a crowd of people. Uh, communication, and, and this is especially true during lockdowns, communication is largely online. Yes. Therefore, it's largely controlled by private companies like Twitter and, and LinkedIn and so on. Um, and it's, it, it's potentially problematic if those companies are not acting in a viewpoint neutral matter. Now, how do you figure out what's viewpoint neutral? How do you enforce that? That's that's a tough question. I kind of wish I had an answer to. Right. But I just look at I look at what's happening and it doesn't look viewpoint neutral to me. So and, and this yeah. this is actually not that different yeah. uh, from what can occur with other types of uh, media like scientific journals. Yeah. All people. I have my own viewpoints. I have my own biases. Well, so do the editors, so do the peer reviewers. I'm a peer reviewer. I, you know, when I review a paper, I have certain biases that I bring to the table. And if most reviewers tend to have viewpoints that are not representative of the population, then you have a potential problem. Yes. Um, and so I actually call this peer censorship. Uh, you know, when I'm when I'm not in a formal context when I talk to. And it is. You know, I mean. Friends. I guess I would say that one of the things somebody who is a majority viewpoint holder said recently was, don't trust somebody on COVID if they haven't published peer review literature. And, and, and I wanted, and I did say, I said, telling somebody with a minority viewpoint that you're not publishing peer review literature is like sitting on somebody's chest and asking them why they're not standing up. Because y that's the whole reason they can't get it through the peer review is that it's a minority viewpoint. And all you need is one person who's a reviewer on your three and you pull your slot machine. You need one person to screw you over. You can't get it through. So minority viewpoints are very difficult to publish in peer review journals. It just takes time. I mean, it will eventually happen, but by then the pandemic will be over. We have a vaccine for Christ's sake, you know, it'll be over by the time these guys get it through guys and gals 
Um, so I think that's not a right thing to say. I think that is a thing. Peer review encourages a herd mentality and thought. It's also not a safeguard against stupid things because a lot of peer-reviewed articles are stupid and, and some many are retracted later and they're fraudulent because, you know, it's really, I, I, like, I say it's like going to the slot machine and pulling it. You need three cherries and you're going to keep pulling the lever. You know, why does the rabbit run faster than the fox? Because the rabbit runs for his life and the fox runs for a meal. And that's why articles always get in because I'm going to keep sending it until you take it. Um, so, I, you know, I think you're right about that. Um, I want to come back for a second about our intolerance to ideas. I agree with you. Something changed in the culture and the zeitgeist. I was born in 1982. People born in my year, we're on the cusp. I think people born in different years, they view speech fundamentally differently than I view it in a couple ways. One is, if you ask me what offends me personally, what harasses me personally, what hurts me personally in terms of speech... It's almost nothing. I mean, if you published where my address was or you said to kill me or something like that, okay, easy tiger. I mean, come on, I'm not, you know, easy. I'm not doing that kind of, I'm not talking about provocative issues. But if you said I'm stupid, my opinions are stupid, and I've done bad work, you know, I'm not going to be happy with that, but I'm accept, I'm happy to take my lashings. Um, if you If you insult a group that I also hold membership in, be it Indian Americans, first-generation Americans, immigrants. My parents are immigrants. Um, I, 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 I love immigrants. Uh, I love my parents. Uh, and and, and um, I don't know, um, you know, any sort of racial, ethnic, or characteristic group. I personally am, am, am not going to be very personally offended by that. I may disagree with your characterization. I may want to defeat you in the court of public opinion, but I'm not going to view an attack like that as a personal attack on me uh, because I don't think it is. But I think the younger generation ha is sort of redefining what it means to be harassment or um, in, in that sense that if, if it's about any characteristic or group, um, they can feel personally offended and they can, you know, you talked about that harassment is one of the reasons that the internet service providers can delete things. And we've stretched that to mean any idea that, you know, makes you uncomfortable um, can be considered harassment. At least that's how I feel like it is in terms of looking at how universities are enforcing these rules. I mean, I, I agree with all of that. And I don't know that I have uh, you know, much more to add. I, I've certainly seen that in the university context where, there are emails that are exchanged, sometimes official emails, sometimes informal emails that are clearly aligned with one viewpoint or another. And, um, you know, that, that may provide assurance to people who share the viewpoint that's being expressed, but it, it does just the opposite for anyone who holds any other viewpoint. Right. And so I don't know that that makes things any, any better off than we were before. I, I think we need to reinvigorate some of the ideals that um, were maybe more prevalent 30 or 40 or 50 years ago. And the goal here is not to try to take our viewpoint and make sure everyone shares it. It's to try to listen to and to understand other people's viewpoints. So we, we should not be name calling. Uh, you know, name calling is not going to win anyone over to your side. Shaming is not going to win anyone over to your side. Uh, if if there are data that are clear, then you know present those data. They're and they're, they're smart people and with all kinds of different viewpoints. Um, you know, if the facts are clear, I think they or at least some of them, many of them, will change their views. Just you know, share those facts. Don't force them. Don't force you know your ideology down anyone else's throat. Yeah, I agree. I mean. We'll come back to censoring in a second, but I think it's, it's, it's part of a broader cultural phenomenon that you've articulated nicely, which is the ability to hear an idea that you fundamentally disagree with and loathe. And I will tell you that I actually go the other way. I seek it out. I follow people to punish myself because I hate what they say, especially in our space of cancer drug policy and drug policy, there, which is an issue that I feel passionate about and I've studied a long time. Um, I follow people intentionally because I know they do not agree with me, but they give me ideas and they help me think about the shortcomings in my arguments. And I spend a lot of time thinking about how do I actually get this person who feels so differently to change their vote? How do I flip them or flip people around? Around them. Um, and, and I guess one of the things I worry about is this novel tactic of, you know, if somebody says something that you consider problematic, and, and believe me, I sometimes agree with the crowd that these are problematic things to say, and they're very hurtful, and they are wrong, and I certainly wouldn't say that, and I, and I, and I agree that that person should be, you know, um, criticized for saying that. But the thing that I think goes too far often, not always, but often is they call the person's employer, they get the person fired, uh, or they, they push for professional retribution. And I think it there's two things to discuss. One is, is that the sort of society we want to live in where if anyone missteps in any direction, you're going to try to 
severely financially punish them in a country with no safety net, so it can be often draconian, um, maybe even leading to their suicide, child abuse, spousal abuse, and their, fa- you know, things that you, you don't really want to be causing. That's part of it. But the other part of it is, do you even defeat the idea? Like if somebody espouses a poisonous or incorrect idea and you go out and get them fired and you get the next person fired, what do you do to people who hold that idea or similar ideas? I don't think you get them to reverse their thinking. I think what you get them to do is to talk about it in places where they can't get caught. They're going to talk about it on cell phones, in person, in private meetings, uh, at bars. They're going to talk about it and hold those ideas underground. And I think that's sometimes the worst thing you can do for your cause. If, um, if, my, if my cause is lower drug prices and I tried to you know, get everybody who believes in high drug prices fired, um, they're going to have their high drug price meetings in places that I can't access them, I can't persuade them, and I don't know what they're saying. And it could potentially... I don't know, lead to a more volatile situation. I guess, how do you think about this issue of, you know, the issue of one, how do you actually change people's minds? And the other issue of like, is this a just punishment for holding some of these views? Well, I think you change people's minds by presenting them with, with the facts. And if people are fully informed and they still disagree, then, you know, at some point you have to stop pushing and accept that, that not everyone agrees with, with you, that, that there are different ways to look at the world based on the same set of facts. Um, I think you're right, though, about going somewhere, you know, forcing people to go somewhere else if if you express too high a level of intolerance. And that is probably what is contributing to the increased polarization in the country. People yeah. feel uncomfortable living uh, you know, or working or being where they're fired from being around people with, you know, who all tend to share the same viewpoint. And where do they go? Well, they go where they feel more welcome. Yeah. Um, and so you have kind of this separation of, uh, you know, different ideologies and it's, it's self-segregation to different, different places. And I think that is, that is dangerous because you don't want to have, you want to have people integrated. You want to have that free flow of ideas. You want people to understand and listen to, one another. And, and when they're not doing that, especially when you have a minority group that's being oppressed, if they repeatedly feel like they're not being listened to, not being heard, uh, and there's no other way for them to speak out, that is something that can lead some people to engage in violence. Yeah. And, and that's maybe goes, um, you know, helps to explain some of the um, atti- rising attitudes or rising occurrences of terrorism that we've seen over the last 40 years. Absolutely. I think. Um... You know, you're you're good to talk a lot about the COVID issues, and I think that those are particularly salient in a couple of ways. One, we're making decisions that um, shape the fabric of every domain of life, from economics to business to human health to epidemiology to psychology to children's health, um, and and. I think any honest broker would say that I alone do not know everything that I that we are doing. I cannot because I'm not I don't have content expertise in every subject on earth. Um, we're also doing some of the most disruptive things in society that have ever been done. Um, we've never uh, had such large scale shutdowns. So I think it's only natural. In fact, it would be ludicrous to think that everyone would agree um, that there's going to be a faction that thinks that closing down the economy is paying a too deep a price um, for a virus that has higher death rates in older citizens populations. And, and that there are other ways we can negotiate that, like Great Barrington people do believe. And I think there are going to be people on the other side who, of course, believe that we ought to do these things because lives are immeasurably important and, and some of these economic things can be solved on the back end. Of course, they're going to be both sides. But if the people who are in those camps are so confident that they alone are right, um, that they should not hear any opinion that's outside of their own opinion, I think that that is a delusion. Like, how how can you ever be born it's like the peak dunning kruger to think that you're so smart that you know what you know it just blows me away an issue like schools which i think is infinitely complex um uh and i think that's part of the problem is that is that and i do think it's more on one side than the other it's the majority side because they have the power to silence the minority side and i don't think the minority has too much power to do anything about the majority other than tease them in in some you know uh, like like an ant fighting an elephant you know they don't really have too much uh, ability um it's a, it's, a, it's a great example because the uncertainty bounds are the biggest we've ever had him, but the, the inability to listen to ver- variety of viewpoints is, is the most narrow I've ever seen it. And, and that's a, just such a huge juxtaposition. Yeah, I think that's right. And, and you, you, know, you, um, you mentioned the losses of jobs and people you know, having real impacts on their own life based on the reactions that they get from the majority. And 
I, I don't think this is unprecedented. It's just been a number of decades. There was uh, you know, the, the McCarthy era. Yeah. That um, you know, I'm maybe not the most qualified person to talk about, but it, your time, yeah. similar you know, blacklists and and intolerance of people back then, and and I, I'm sure it happened before that. I think in World War One there were some uh, restrictions on free speech that was actually in, um, instituted by the government yeah. and enforced by uh, private parties that were encouraged by the government. Um, so this has happened. The pendulum has swung back and forth in the past. Um, I actually I see this more often in a completely different context, which is patent law. Mm. There have been periods where patent law has been strengthened uh, because they think that the economy is not, uh, you know, we're not protecting inventions strongly enough. And then the, the pendulum swings the other way. And and right now in that context, we're kind of at the, the nadir where there's, uh, we've had increasing erosions of patent protections since the 19, uh, well, I guess late 1990s or early, early 2000s. And, you know, I, I don't know where the perfect point is, but when you see things swinging back and forth, uh, you know, at some point on that swing, it's got to be at the wrong point. So it's just a you know a matter of trying to agree, uh, get agreement as to where that point is. Where is the ideal point? You know, there are like two phenomena we're talking about. One is like the day-to-day -day intolerance of other opinions and 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 wanting to avoid people who hold any opinion you don't hold, um, which is a problem. And then there's the, the the emergent phenomenon of mob behavior when one person says something that's considered so egregious by many others that they sort of I think gang up on that one person and and go after them. And I've 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 just been an observer in this space of mob Twitter, and I wrote an article about mob Twitter because I I really. I'm uncomfortable with it um, because they find one person who holds a view that I think many, many people may hold secretly or grudgingly to some degree. And they, you know, they basically want to hang them, uh, make a public example out of them. And, and I really, I think like, even when I hate everything that person says, which is often the case, I don't think it's a helpful thing for any other cause. Like I think it creates sympathy with the vic you know, the person who's being uh, hung in the tree and it just drives it underground. But one of the things I noticed when I've been following this on Twitter is the people who lead the mobs and the person who is the offender from the standpoint of the mob, they, there's often a backstory. They have interacted many times before and disagreed on other issues. And, and I was reading some history books recently, and my understanding is in the Salem witch trials, which I, you know, many of us read modern and we're like, how could that ever happen? They burned a human being for being a witch. Obviously, there's no such thing as witches. Um, one of the things I read was that in many cases, there were pre-existing grievances between the parties and the charge that this person is a witch was made by somebody who had a long-standing grievance with the other person. Um, and so I guess I see, a, I see just a total parallel that we're the same tribal animal that when, you, when somebody keeps taking your peach cobbler off your windowsill or whatever, uh, or somebody does some slight to you, um, when you have an opportunity to get a lot of people to, to hang them, uh, you'll take that opportunity. And, and that, to me, is not a good place to be in a society that we allow people to use a mob to carry out pre-existing grievances. So I, I can't comment on the mob aspect, yes. but there's an, an, another analogy in the law, in the employment law context, actually, where uh, an employer will, will discharge someone and they'll give a reason that uh, the person who was discharged thinks is pretextual. Uh, yes. Not the real reason, right? Um, you know, and so is it? Was it the underline? Was it the, you know, kind of the history that you're talking about of different grievances between the two parties that's now being manifested in some some other way? Um, and you know, it's part of the job of the court system to try to tease that out. But in, in some of these cases, again, on the internet where you're censoring speech, there's not necessarily ever going to be a court system involved because if I have a, a tweet that's taken down, it's just not worth my time in the vast majority of cases to go to court over that. Now, um, every once in a while, actually, I've had some people tell me who are on the side, the uh, people who I still keep in my life, even though we disagree, because they, they think that this kind of censorship is a-okay. And their argument to me is, to, is a couple fold. One of their arguments is, is that, um, you know, I, I always say, I always play the slippery slope argument, like, of course, this is where it starts, um, but it's going to go in these directions. And, and their counter argument is that, you know, no one has faced this massive retribution or these deletions who didn't say something totally crazy. So it, the slippery slope does not exist. They don't believe it exists. Uh, or they believe that this is a just thing to do, to delete this content. This content is dangerous. It can't be out there. What are your thoughts for that kind of argument that, um, I mean, there are some, like this Pizzagate, I don't know, I, I am, I'm not an expert in this Pizzagate, but there's made up something about some pizza restaurant as a 
participating in some Hillary Clinton thing and some people went there with guns and is like actually it causes some real problem with some wackadoodle idea. Um, are there ideas that are so crazy we should take them down or how do we deal with these really crazy ideas and is this just the marketplace of ideas working itself out or is it different? Yeah, so now you're going back to, I think, what we touched on earlier, and I, I wish I had the answer to that. I, I do think it's a line drawing problem. There are, there are probably things that are clearly on one side of the line or the other. The, the courts have, to some extent, carved out exceptions. The, the, one of the famous exceptions to the free speech, you know, the First Amendment issue, is if you yell fire in a crowded uh, theater, right, that isn't necessarily protected by the First Amendment. Why? Well, because it could lead to a stampede, people could die, and it's, I guess, the likelihood, according to the court, was high enough that, that they don't think that's protected. Mm -hmm. But where you draw the line, I, I don't think is a, an easy an easy question at all. Mm. Yeah, I struggle with it. I mean, I guess I, say, I, I would say that, like, the reason I'm particularly uncomfortable is looking at the way we are in 2020. I mean, we have a very small handful of companies led by young people who may not have the full emotional range one would want from such leaders of these companies, um, very pedantic and analytical and computer-based people running these mega companies that have total control over the domains in which we speak. Um, they are incredibly profitable, so profitable that people are, you know, they've made some of the most wealthy people on earth. Um, and, and, and they have no real accountability um, and that they're the ones that people are asking to do this enforcement um, in, a, in a time where the culture is increasingly intolerant to hear anything no anyone doesn't want to hear. I just see like, I mean, I guess that's what concerns me is that I see all these things moving together. It would be one thing if there was a 10,000 different companies where you could go on, but there's only one Twitter and one Facebook. And it would be one thing if people were displaying a tolerance to different ideas, but there were two companies, but it's both things go, happening side by side. Um, and that's why I see it as, you know, my the scenario that I keep coming to in my mind is that anybody with money will defeat anyone without money. Uh, it'll be like a Citizens United because Jonathan Darrow writes an article about Lyrica. Well, you know, you're one person. How many people can you get together that say Lyrica is terrible? You probably get 20 people, 30 people easily, you know, who, who are experts in it can say Lyrica has mediocre data. But the makers of Lyrica, you know, they make so much money off Lyrica, they can get uh, a thousand people to tell you you're wrong. And, and at some point, there is nobody with the external expertise to arbitrate the dispute in Facebook. They don't have anyone there who understands trials at the level beyond you and these other thousand people. Um, and yet they're going to be the ones who are arbitrating that dispute. And so the answer will be Lyrica is good, Jonathan Darrow, fake news, Lyrica bad, and the fake news will be expunged. Um, is that part of your, that's part of what motivating you, I think, I, I would imagine. Well, I'm glad you threw money into the mix. Yeah. That, that is another important factor. And um, I don't think it's just that uh, you know, big companies have a lot of money. It's also the business models of some of these online platforms, which are driven by advertising. And this is true of scientific journals as well. They get a lot of money from advertising. And so that can that's another factor that makes it difficult to express minority viewpoints. Mm -hmm. I guess the thing that has angered me about all this is, um, you know, and again, I don't, I, I can't, I'm, I guess I'm a little bit like you because I haven't been able to articulate a, a clear line for everybody and every issue. And I don't follow political misinformation, so I'm not an expert in it, but medical information I do follow and medical debates I follow and I participated in. And I think to me that the, the straws that broke my back were to see people who are professors who've done work for decades, who are actually Somehow, you know, it's hard to see, but I think they're being rather consistent. Like, for instance, Carl Hennigan, like, we can disagree with Carl Hennigan and people can think masks are wonderful and that there is no data that shows they, there's no data that contradicts the claim that they could protect others. And in fact, I believe that that is the case. There's not a cluster randomized trial that contradicts that claim. But Carl Hennigan's view has been consistently for 20 plus years that if you want me to do anything from take a pill to take a shot to take a mask, you need to prove to me in a randomized fashion that this is improves the outcome. That's his consistent line in the sand. And he feels that for this particular issue, no one has ever done that. They've shown aerosolization studies and they've shown quasi-experimental studies. He doesn't like those studies. He's never liked him. He never will like him until he's a dead man. Um, so to me, it's a problem when they censor it and they say that all these other studies that are not to the level that this guy likes should persuade him because it's missing the fact that, you know, he has a different line. You know, that's not my line. Actually, I actually do wear, you know, I got one, I got one right here. And my line is I wear this for the same reason I wear, I wear pants. People are wearing it. 
shut up, I wear pants, I wear this. You know, do I want to wear these stupid pants? You know, I don't know. But I wear it. I don't, I don't ask too many questions. And, I, and I'm a healthcare provider, so that means I've never had total control over my own body because they make me do all these stupid things every year. And, I, and the, the less I ask, the better. I get the shots, I do the te- PPD test. The less I ask, the better. Because the more I look into it, I'm dissatisfied and we write some article about how PPD testing is stupid and healthcare workers. And, you know, we published that a couple years ago. So Carl Hennigan, consistent. John Yonides, actually people think, they say he's gone crazy. He's rather consistent. I mean, his view has always been when people believe they can intervene in situations to make it better, they tend to be wrong and they tend to be wrong for reasons X, Y, and Z. And so he comes guns blazing in March with his view that lockdowns may do more harm than good. And he says in his list of things, you know, this may be less fatal than we think because that's another thing he's always said since the dawn of time that people may exaggerate the harms or benefits of products. Um, And then the other thing he says in his commentary that was probably deeply prescient that people will not give him credit for is that prolonged lockdown may lead to things you don't anticipate, like civil strife, political unrest, um, protesting, you know, all these sorts, you know, he he gives a laundry list of ways in which society, and he even says something like the fabric of society may be be tattered or something like that. Um, You know, I guess I would say it's it's perfectly acceptable for people to disagree with him, but I also have said from the outset that people should consider that he may not be, he may be wrong about some of the details of IFR, but he may be right about some of the big picture stuff. And in an effort to demonize him about, I don't know, the 95th percent confidence interval in some stupid study, um, you may not be substantively engaging with him on the deeper issues that... Um, you know, that that maybe some of what we're doing is destabilizing democracy itself and and not educating a group of kids is going to destabilize democracy and and starving people. You know, there are literally food lines in the city and they're getting longer and longer and, and you know, starving people. That's not good for democracy. Um, and, and I think he was incredibly one of the first people to see these these consequences. Um, anyway, those are just my thoughts on it. Yeah, so he, I'm I'm glad that you brought up John Ioannidis because that that had happened so early in the pandemic that I had, had almost forgotten about it. But of course, John Ioannidis is one of the most well-respected, well-known luminaries in the field. And uh, the criticism that I saw directed at him early on was just shocking. And his his bravery in uh, in, in you know sharing what uh, his data and what his analysis I, I thought was commendable. Uh, but if someone like John Ioannidis can be yeah. attacked and vilified, who is safe? Cer- certainly not a, a lowly assistant professor such as myself. Um, and I, I think that's, yeah, go ahead, finish your thought. Yeah. Well, I, you, you mentioned a couple other things about Carl Hennigan, who I'm not as familiar with, yeah. but I, I think earlier you had, you had mentioned, uh, you know, that his position was that it shows no significant benefit. Yes. I, I guess I would criticize that that phrasing as well. I would say that it fails to show. Yes, a significant that's a better way to say it. Yes, that fails. I mean, to that's, show. that's yes, you know, way, yeah. there is a difference there. Maybe the average person wouldn't, wouldn't see the difference, but um, uh, you know, the, the study itself, I think, is um, an illustration of the, of the chilling of free debate that um, that we're seeing now, the extent to which, which that study was criticized uh, compared to studies showing efficacy, you know, which have plenty of their own limitations. <laughs> they're also terrible. Um, yeah. So, so it's like those, made up ecological right, studies. To but, you know, yeah. and, and they're not even really studies. Some no. of these are really glorified anecdotes where yeah. they say, but, but what the news reports and what is repeated over and over again is, look how many lives we could save if everyone wore masks. They don't talk about the limitations in those studies. Whereas here's a study that says, well, you know, maybe wouldn't wouldn't not clear we'd save any lives by wearing masks. And instead, all they focus on is the limitations in that study. So it's, it's a double standard that's been applied. And this is by scientists in some t- cases. It's by public health experts, right? That this is not just politicians that are doing this. And, and that is, you know, something that that troubles me. Yeah, I just guess the- I'd say. I mean, I guess a couple of things. I mean, that you remind me of. Well, one is this issue. Um, there were some scientists who used to be very disciplined who became staunch advocates for masks early on and helped push that in dialogue. Um, and people ask me if I feel like they in, at times overplayed their hand. I think from a strict point of view of the evidence, I think that probably is accurate that they did overplay their hand. Um, I also think that to some degree, I, I kind of, my hat's off to them a little bit because I'm like, wow, look at that advocacy. I mean, they really were quite effective. They've got, they changed the net, the dialogue around this issue. Um, and so I guess I, I, I got to hate the play. I got to, uh, don't hate the player, hate the game. Um, uh, but then the next thing I think about is, 
the silencing issue that you mentioned, which was one of the counter arguments people make is that John has not been silenced. He's still free to publish preprints. He's still quoted in some outlets, not perhaps not as many outlets as he used to be. Um, and to me, the point that you made is what, what about a lowly assistant professor? Um, that's what people don't see. Like John has published a thousand papers and, um, and you know, before, before all this, uh, and contributed a lot to a lot of fields. And I think is probably the most cited person, uh, at least, you know, or soon to be the most cited person in all of human history, uh, at the rate of which citations accrue. Although that may change actually because of this, this tarring. Um, and he was, you know, insulted in so many ways. I mean, it wasn't just the, that his study was shitty and all these things he said were shitty and he went on these shitty shows. They also started to say, like, I read things like, oh, look at this, look at this smug bastard in his white suit or somebody made, you know, all these kind of personal jokes. And I'm like, it's some, and like some, these are like respected academics saying these things. And I'm I'm like, come on. He's, I'm like, get off his suit. I mean, his fucking white suit. Who gives a shit? He likes a white suit. Okay. I don't know. People have different ways they dress. I, I, I tend not to attack someone's outfit. Um, that's not my du jour. But they were doing that. And, and I think a lot of people saw it. A lot of young people, a lot of mid-career people. And they were, the lesson was clear, which is keep, if you disagree with lockdowns, you better shut your mouth. Because this is what can happen to the, you know, the most prominent scientist. We can do this to him. You think if you have an opinion that, um, that, that lockdowns may do more harm than good or school closure is a bad idea, we can, you're done. Your, your career is over. Pack your suitcase. Um, and I think a lot of people, like, it's not worth it, you know. Um, um, so I think that it did silence a lot of people. There are a lot of people who just never spoke. You don't see what people don't say, as you put wisely. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Um, I, I was just going to mention one more thing, which yeah. is that um, an, another very difficult issue, which is, that, you know, there are certain public health interventions that require participation of, yeah. of everyone. And, you know, vaccinations might be put forth, uh, I mean, masks might be put forth. Um, and so, uh, you know, I, I think it's important to distinguish the public policy that, that we follow and that's enforced and it's on the law books from the debate and the freedom of debate, the freedom of speech, making sure that when we tell people you must wear a mask, you must get vaccinated, you must, you know, whatever it happens to be, that we're, we're doing that on the basis of honest information, that we're telling, that we're not trying to pull the wool over their eyes and tell them this is the best thing since sliced bread, when the evidence doesn't support that. You, you, we need to let them know there's mixed evidence. Uh, you know, here's why we're doing what we're doing. This is, we think we're doing the best decision. Here's all the reasons that support it. Um, but you know, it, there's uncertainty and, um, you know, and we're just doing the best we can, but, but, uh, this is, this is all that we can do. And so that, I think that's, that's really important to distinguish between those two things. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, um, yes, that, that, and, and in addition to that, I think, um, you're making a good point, which is that the theoretical belief that if everyone did X, things would be better. That's one, that's one set of discussion. But then the secondary question of if we mandate that they do X, will things be better? Th those two things can be just totally at odds. Like, you know, it, it could be the case that doing X is better, but by instituting a mandate in a politically divided society in the year of an election when, with, a, with a partisan person doing it with extreme rhetoric um, and, and with what enforcement mechanism, the law, the compulsion of force, police presence, um, it's possible that some of that may, may not serve your cause. Um, that's why I was... I mean, I think the mask is just, it's, 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 I mean, it, it became, it's a visible symbol, unlike hand-washing. So nobody says hand-washing. Everyone says mask because you can see it and you can see somebody doing it. And nobody knows whether or not I wear a mask when I have a dinner party in my house. You can't check me on that. And a lot of people are violating, you know, potentially violating that rule. But you can see it when I'm on the street where ironically it has like almost no data at all to ever support whether or not we should be wearing these outside and in public. But let's put that aside. Um, and, and then Trump doesn't do it. So that makes it even more political. And so it became this total disaster. I mean, historically, Historians will look back on this as like the craziest thing of, um, I mean, you know, like when, when the Aztecs were hit with the plague, they was, they sacrificed a lot of goats. And when we were hit with the plague, we, we, we fought tooth and nail about this and it came to fisticuffs over wearing a mask. And, and I read like actual doctors say, I was shopping in a Home Depot, there's a mask mandate and there's a guy there who's not wearing a mask. And then this doctor tweets, I asked the Home Depot, why don't you go enforce this mask mandate on this guy? And they said, well, Home Depot policy is we don't enforce this shit. And then this guy was saying, how, we should boycott Home Depot. That's the classic, you know, more, okay, we're just going to boycott Home Depot. And I was like, the reason they're not doing it is because you're in Ohio. And in Ohio, everyone's armed to the teeth with their 
concealed carry guns and you got somebody who doesn't want to wear a mask despite everything they've heard on the internet and the news and everything and they're walking around this home depot and if you send some 17 year old kid who's paid minimum wage to go confront this person it's going to end in with a couple body bags everywhere when this guy start, opens fire and it's so obviously home depot is doing the sensible thing which is that they can either be known as a store where they don't enforce the mask policy or the store where people get massacred when they when their employees go and talk to them. i mean so that's the kind of logic they're having and so to me it just strikes me as so frustrating and disconnected that we're that somebody would be so cocksure about this thing that they would want to have this draconian policy that will kill some minimum wage worker and 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 if not they'll boycott the the stupid store where they sell hardware that to me I mean I I honestly think it's just like I don't know it just speaks to the mental health of where we are as a citizenry like we're not doing well mentally um and and this is just how it manifests itself so in the drug context, there is a somewhat well-known problem, I guess, among, among those of us who study this, that you can keep doing a study over and over again or study a drug over and over again until you get uh, sufficient evidence for the FDA to approve the drug. Yeah. And um, yeah, we, we saw this with a, a drug called uh, Pimavanserin, which failed, I think, two randomized controlled trials and they came up with a new way to measure effectiveness and it passed the third one yeah. and then it was approved as a breakthrough uh, medicine yeah. for for yeah. psychosis and um my concern is that something similar could happen with masks right now we have lots of poor quality evidence some of it shows masks are good some of it shows masks don't do anything and there's some that actually shows masks make things worse and uh, my concern is that what what's going to happen is that we're going to keep doing trials and when they don't show that masks are helpful, we're you know we're going to talk about them as if they're terrible studies. When they show masks are um, you know helpful, we're going to keep talking up those studies. And then when someone actually does you know the first high quality trial that shows that they're beneficial, we're going to stop. Yeah. Because now we found the result that we wanted, and you know maybe that won't be the truth. I agree a lot. I think that's a that is the number one. You know when. When when I was growing up, there used to be this thing where, like, scientists should not become naked political actors. Scientists should not be so wedded to their hypothesis that that it will break your heart if you're wrong. I mean, that was sort of some conventional teaching. But that has shifted a lot. And a lot of scientists, even very significant big-name deans of universities— are open political actors telling you who to endorse as a candidate? Um, you know, journals are doing that. Um, you know, um, and 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 people have strong opinions about healthcare products. Um, you know, in a way I've never seen before, and that is not a good recipe for impartial adjudication of anything. Um, I guess I would say the only thing I've ever had going for me as a cancer doctor is I have never been so in love with anything I've ever done that I wouldn't be willing that if somebody brought me a negative study to quickly reverse my tune. And one of my frustrations with my colleagues is that some of them have something they do that they love. And I've never fallen in love with any drug or any procedure I do, and I do a lot. Um, so that has left me a little bit, yeah, I guess I, I guess that's not where I look for love in the, in the drug cabinets. Uh, <laughs> I mean, imagine imagine this uh, this Dan mask study. If it had come out the other way, people oh. would have said, "Look, randomized control trial it shows that it works. All right, we're done. We're done, not doing any yeah. more studies." But because it came out negative, well, we got to we got to run more trials. Yeah, or I guess I I think their view is even. I don't even know if they are going to run. I mean, we have this one cluster randomized trial in the Guinea. I think their view might be like it's a pair. Oh, I I mean, I heard it called a parachute, which is another can of worms that's another pet peeve of mine every every drug or device that we have studied for years um there's somebody out there saying it's a parachute like uh, impella for cardiogenic shock and i was like like a parachute and then you know someday they're going to do the randomized trial and i suspect it'll be a null study like aortic balloon pump and then they're going to be like oh uh about that parachute yeah um well um i don't want to take too much of your time but i think this is su such an important discussion um i'm glad you darkened your profile um, and I think you, it caught my eye and I'm glad you were able to unpack how you feel about it. I think, um, I'll let you have the last words, but I'll just say my last thought is, um, for the young people who are not monolithic. And I know that because I talk to many people who are young, who I still work with, I would say the single best thing you can do to help you in your quest to make a difference in the world, 
um, which I think is the quest of many young people, which is a good thing, is to become really, really good at methods and understanding how we know things cause things and how we know what's true and not. Because if you're an advocate and you're not really good at methods, you can be self-defeating. You can advocate for things that screw up your cause. And then the second thing is to be as open-minded and tolerant to things that you initially don't like. Because even if you disagree with them at the end of the day, even if you think they're wrong or misguided, understanding why they're misguided, where their train comes off the tracks and, and articulating that really clearly can be a great help for you in your quest. Like some of my, my, I think, at least I personally think my best papers were I really understood why they felt the way they did and I came in with a paper that torpedoed them right in their sweet spot because I knew that was what they believed in. And then now, you know, to some degree, I believe I have changed a little bit of the discussion in, in the cancer field um, in some narrow, narrow topic that, you know, five people care about. Um, so I encourage young people to confront ideas you don't like, listen to them, hear them out, listen to podcasts that make you squirm in your seat, listen to people you hate, um, take it in, suck it up, especially when you're young, because you don't know everything and you're, you're going to keep changing as you get older. And then think about why you disagree, where you disagree and get better at methods. Um, it will help you in your quest to make the world better. Even if you, if you, if you are, st if you remain where you've always been ideologically, um, but also if you shift as well. Well, I don't think that I can top that. I yeah. can't say it better than that. So thanks so much for having me, and I appreciate it. Thanks, Jonathan Darrow. And uh, folks can find you at, at Jonathan Darrow, Darkened Profile, on Twitter and uh, Instagram. Thanks so much for doing this. Right, take care. You've been listening to Season 3 of Plenary Session. Plenary Session is produced by Kiana Klossner. Music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. The views expressed on Plenary Session are those of whoever said it and no one else. Plenary Session is not medical advice. Follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session. Until next time.